I thought you were dead. Sun out of your eyes and be yourself. Heard you were dead. She's dead, wrapped in plastic. That man's dead back then. It was worse than dead. He must be dead. Is this a dead man, Doctor? Tell what it is now that now that I put that in your head. Yeah, now I can't yeah. get rid of it. Welcome to Roast Mortem. You're 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 what you're you're meant to be here. Yeah. Here you are. It's not yeah. that. God damn it. <laughs> you Roast Mortem. You clicked on the episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's do that. Hey, welcome to Roast Mortem. You belong here. That's what. That's it is. what it is. See? You belong here. You belong, yeah, see, you belong just have to here. Get into the, the and mode. now you're here. Let's start the show. You clicked on the show. You're here now. Yeah. Hi, I'm Tom. Hi, I'm Travis. I'm Connor. Guys, so glad you're here. Yeah. We're here at the end of a we're, journey. We're here. You're here. We clicked. We're all about clicking. All you I do can't... all day is click, and you made one excellent click on your phone. Yeah. Probably, maybe two. Um, you know, download, play. I guess some spot uh, podcast players just hit you hit play, I guess, on some of them. Yeah, if you're streaming and not poor, you just hit the button mm. see but my, i don't use spotify uh, if a sponsor if spotify is looking to sponsor us i will switch but i use a different one so i have to like if i'm just going to stream it offline i have to hit a one button and then hit play what is it podcast addict yes okay all right well spotify you know if you want to get rid of joe rogan we'll pull in more viewers <laughs> we'd actually welcome him as a guest oh absolutely yeah, yeah, you that'd do, be a good one. We could roast him up until the moment he gets on the show, like like do a roast of Joe, and it ends with him on our show. Yeah, and then we As, cut him off. Yeah, yeah, and we just stop the show. That's I mean, if he came on the show, he would have to revitalize Fear Factor for us. I want to eat roaches. I want to eat like I want to be submerged in tarantulas and in mud. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, that is the future. What used to be Fear Factor is now like. Real what life. Black Rock brings you <laughs> as the future. Yeah, I was gonna say that's college now. <laughs> yeah, that's just going out to get groceries. Yeah. So how is everyone's week? Um, Connor, do you have it? Yeah, I've got something. I think part of the reason we struggled with the "you belong here, we belong here" at the top is because we've got a new s- basement setup. Yeah, it's we're all sitting. We're sitting in new spots. Yeah, it's different, isn't it? It, it still is. needs some ar- arranging. Yeah, I like it though. It's more comfortable. Yeah, it's spacious. I got rid of a dirty couch. (laughs) It it looks like you guys have like a fireplace in front of you. That should be the final addition. I can put that right there. There's a window right there. That's all you need for a fireplace, right? It's just a window. A window and some some bricks and gum. (laughs) There we go. Um, Aside from this, though, the rest of my week was good. The interesting thing that happened to me is my desk at work faces outside. And it was early morning. It's a standing desk. I'm, uh, you know, just at my desk. And I hear a real loud thud. And I look out the window, and there's just a rain of feathers dripping down, like fluttering down in the wind. Oh, gosh. And the window is right over a stairwell. So the other woman in the office, we both hear it, and we're getting up to look. We don't see anything. So I go outside, and the stairwell is, like, fenced off, so I can't really see what's going on. And she's yelling through the window. She's like, no, I see something down there. And as she screams, we just hear a clearly dying pigeon scream out as a hawk then is flying away 
over the fence into the yard nearby where I work. It's like this family's backyard. And that's all we see of it. So clearly we had witnessed a hawk pin a pigeon out of midair against our building. Um, and then yeah. we went back to watch the footage because there's a camera over there, but it's motion activated. So it just goes no signal, no signal, no signal. And then it just cuts to an image of all the feathers fluttering down. <laughs> and you just see the hawk pinning the pigeon down at the bottom of the stairs. Dude, dude. those yeah. are some sky it cats, was nuts, man. Yeah, it was really cool. It's a bulking hawk. Hawk. That's yeah. a hard thing to say. Bulking hawk. Bulking hawk. Yeah, that guy was, was a big pigeon, too. Good. Yeah. Well, winter time. That's when you want to get them. Yep. Yep. They've been, been fattening up seeds. Mm-hmm. See, All I always, season. whenever I see pigeons, I think of Animaniacs, where it's like the Joe Pesci, you know, uh, kind of pigeon, and he. Yeah. I just imagine that Joe Pesci going, "Oh no! What are you getting <laughs> me here? What's what's going on here?" <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 That was pretty cool. That's nature, man. Yeah. You guys see any bird attacks this week? Any nature? Oh man. I feel like I did, but I don't think I did. Mm. Um, Trav, what about out there? What what about how are the birds in Portland? Are there any still alive, or have they all overdosed? <laughs> well, Portland actually has, I think, the biggest collection of crows or ravens. They actually okay. poisoned a whole bunch of them about ten years ago. There's so An accident many. or oh, okay, it was a yeah. culling. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, a murder of crows. <laughs> but you know what got murdered? Uh, at last week after the uh, episode, I decided to go to Wendy's, get myself a couple nuggies. Nice. Oh. Uh, yeah, so I did a little late night run, got some nuggies, bit into that nuggie, and chipped my front tooth on a nuggie. <laughs> oh! <laughs> oh, that sucks. Was yeah. it just like a really hard piece of breading, or was it no. a bone? It was soft. It was the softest <laughs> nugget. It just, part of my tooth fell out. <laughs> Oh, yeah, weak teeth, need more calcium. Yeah, well, you know, I luckily my dentist, uh, I go to Bling Dent- Dental, great place, so bedazzled, they have jewels everywhere and stuff. Good. Fit me right in, got me a filling on my front tooth. But now oh, I can't bite my nails. That, that's why you've got that gleam. <laughs> Did they put diamonds in it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Grills? I, yeah. Well, he was, well, she was like, you might want to think about veneers. <laughs> And I was like, maybe in the future, I'll just have big, white, fake veneers. I aim to do that at some point. My oral hygiene is pretty good. No sign of deterioration or anything. But, man, it would be so cool to have that look. Dude, dude my, my oral hygiene is pretty good, too. They're like, you got great teeth. You got bad gums. So I don't know what the deal <laughs> was with that nugget. I feel like most people have bad gums. I think that's just a thing. I think yeah. only dentists don't have bad gums. Yeah, or, big or dental. Rich people. Yeah. My dentist collects Nancy Drew memorabilia. And that's enough on her. <laughs> well, I'm going to go to Bling <laughs> Dental. Yeah, I want to start going there too, actually. Yeah. yeah. Cooler than Nancy Drew. Yeah. Bling. That's good. What about you, Tom? Did you get blinged? I. All right. So I, I've been having trouble sleeping since, uh, I guess. 1989. <laughs> and uh, so I was talking to Big Steve and telling him about my sleeping problems. And he was like, yo, I'll give you some weed. Try this. And I was like, I don't really fuck with weed, man. Fucks in my head. Mm-hmm. I think something's backwards in there already. And that kind of shakes it up. But I tried his weed anyway. He convinced me. Yeah. He said, oh, it's kind of like low THC. It's like that CBD. It's going to put you to bed. That's the whole idea. 
So I tried it last night. It did not work. I mm, was backfired. <laughs> I was wired till 4.30 in the morning. And for some reason, just the worst mindset. I don't know how people smoke this shit or even advocate for it being legal. It's awful. Mm, see, opposite. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's, really enjoy it. Have lots me, of fun on it. Like I'm on, I'm on like the far right wing of like everything needs to be illegal right now, except <laughs> for cocaine and heroin. <laughs> yeah, but those... uh, and ecstasy. <laughs> we no, but I, yeah, I like started to doze off initially, and mm-hmm. then violent images just kept flashing <laughs> in my head. Tom, I kid you not. Really disturbing stuff oh that my was God. keeping me awake. Yeah, true devil's lettuce. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tom, that was like when I first moved to Portland, I was like, all right, let me go to the dispensary. Let me get like the lowest THC. You know, and they give you a menu. And I'm like, look, I don't smoke this shit. I just want like baby THC. Like, yeah. just like, ugh. And I was like, I, I thought I, I was like, I should join the gentlemen and women out on the street with my shopping cart right now. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm crazy. <laughs> yeah. So you and me are kind of wired the same way in that regard. We're uh, got dumb we just, brains. Yeah. We just makes us. I don't know. It's the wrong voltage. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's not for you. No. It's yeah. not for everybody. We're but, good uh, capitalists. Cocaine. I, I did smoke it out of a an apple. Because I don't have smoking apparatus. Oh, interesting. So I did the in old, apple. All right. Yeah, the college yeah. thing. I got, yeah. a, you know, I got a free apple in the cafeteria. See, Tom, you should have done the cheap spliff method that I used to do in college where we would take a cigarette and a paperclip and take out half of the fillings of this cigarette and right. then stuff it full of weed and shake it and I, then re-twist it up. I have seen that. Do you take the filter off with that? Uh, it would probably help, but we were drunk college kids doing it, so <laughs> we probably didn't. You were cool college kids. dude the cops are never gonna know they're gonna think i'm smoking a stogie no nah, it was not less for the cops and more we want to smoke tobacco and weed oh okay <laughs> yeah ah well there it is yeah that's i other things happened this week i know but i cannot recall them that's it yeah. as for the uh the permanent violent images that mm. are still flashing before me <laughs> uh which came out of very very graphic things flashing before my eyes so i feel like i well tom you might just be living through ptsd of our world war one epic that we've been on i would be honored if we could just get into it now (laughs) honored i'm using that word because i need to stop thinking about my own violence yeah well don't worry the war is over that's where we left thank god yeah Woo! so let's get back to dougie haig and his adventures um, the war has is finally over. They signed the armistice. We talked about it. It's the eerie silence of 11 o'clock on November 11th, 1918. Now comes the hard part for the victorious powers. Now you got to decide what to do now that you've won. Not easy. Um, Haig, for his part, in the very beginning, was arguing for a moderate peace deal. He basically said, just go back to the 1914 borders that we had except Germany will give up Alsace and Lorraine, the one big problem left over from 1870. Uh, His view is that the German army was still far from beaten, which is ironic coming from the guy who for years was claiming that the German army morale was at the verge of collapse. Uh, It's a time and place kind of like, let's go get them, men. You know, Mm -hmm. they're they're falling down. And then as soon as you got them, just like, we got to be careful. They could mm. come back. They could come back at any spring back any second yeah. now. It, it's very much like a peewee baseball coach kind of mentality, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, you're going to crush them, but we got to watch out and the playoffs will come back. 
<laughs> they might get really good. Yeah. I also think I wonder if part of it is like <clears throat> the war ended. He was finally believing it, and then once he started talking to German generals, he was like, "Oh fuck, we almost lost so many times." <laughs> like, maybe it was just like that was like he was coming to the realization. But for whatever it was, these guard um, guys have scars on their face, and they're not even fighting <laughs> yeah. on the front line. That's scary. They're crazy. And they yeah. apparently aren't afraid of horses at all. <laughs> Except for that one guy that's sitting in the corner smelling horse shit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's just building guns. Uh, he worried that humiliating Germany uh, could lead to increased animosity, um, which was not, he was not alone in that view, um, but that view would not hold out for long. Um, hey, also tried to avoid taking credit for the final victory. Many people would thank him for this. Um, but his contemporaries at the time were heaping praise upon him. Uh, General John Pershing of the American Expeditionary Force would come out and say that he was the man that had won the war. So all of his fellow allies are praising Haig at this time, saying he was a brilliant guy. Did his best. He's, he's the one who won the war. He did it. Not those <clears throat> millions. Not the other guys. Not those millions of men. Per Pershing was the leader of the uh, the Yankees, right? The yes. Yankees. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I've seen his name pop up, and you know, I was listening to the song uh, over there the other day after mm. we finished our episode, and obviously they talk about the Yanks are coming, but then there's yep. a second line in it, and I never heard Americans called the Sammies. The <laughs> Sammies. Oh, for it, Uncle Sam. For Uncle Sam, but that oh, also sounds very racist. The Sammies are coming. <laughs> I think that's what you call Finnish people. Yeah, the Samis. I think you're, yeah, it's the S, yeah. Sa the Sami, yeah. Yeah, yeah the Samis, who cares? <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> Randies. Yeah. Um, so Douglas, though, he actually would listen to your advice, Tom, because he deflected most of the attention paid to him back to the ordinary soldier. Um, you know, he would always say, no, 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 it wasn't me. It was the men on the ground who did the fighting. Smart. They're the ones who won the war, which is nice. You know, that's a good... It's a good thing to say in public. Um, however, he was making sure behind the scenes that he got all the spoils of victory due to him as a British general. This has, you know, been par for the course for the British Empire. Is a general's victorious on the battlefield. Doesn't matter who he is. He's getting a big fat bonus. He's going to be made some sort of lord. Um, mm -hmm. We'll give him an annual income. This happened for the Duke of Marlborough after... No, not the well. It happened for the Duke of Marlborough, but that's not who I'm thinking of. The Duke right. of Wellington, after Waterloo, he became really wealthy, Lord of Parliament, you know all these things. So he, he also, wants what's due. He also made a very interesting steak dish. That's right. Yes. That's right. Um. Yeah. So he was expecting his title and wealth. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Haig also made a decision at this time um, to not publish me any memoirs. He didn't secure any like publishing deals in the aftermath of the war, which is um, a lot of the other generals were already planning on this. In fact, uh, Churchill had famously said that, quote, history will be kind to me because I intend to write it. Haig would not do that. He was not going to write a long series of books defending everything he had done throughout the war. Look, yeah, that is kind of weak to do. Yeah. Going around explaining yourself and having to win wars just so you can verify your side of the story. Right. That right. It's kind of weak. Well, and also when you're still alive, we talk about this, uh, we've talked about this in the past. How many Keith Richards biographies are there? 
Come on. <laughs> like, like you're not dead yet. Yeah. Yeah. You got to you gotta be gone from yeah. the world scene. It is. How many Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, biographies are there? <laughs> exactly. Dude, book deals. I mean, they like the amount of book deals and stuff that these politicians get and Oh, they're speaking fees. You know, tell me about your life and how it how it applies to Goldman Sachs exactly. banking strategies. <laughs> and it all comes from Churchill. You're saying I got to write history. He was one of the first. Oh, he's one of the most famous to do it. Probably definitely not the first. Uh, yeah. But that's just a great line. I'm. I intend to write the history that will be kind to me. All right. Haig, however, uh, not writing memoirs. He is making sure that um, he is heavily involved in the Army's official dispatches and summaries of the war. So maybe we shouldn't give him too much credit for not writing a memoir if he's writing the British Army's official history of the war. He's not actually writing it, but you know what I mean. He's watching someone make it happen. He's He's putting his weight on the guys that are writing it. Have it done by Tuesday, he would say. That's what he kept saying to the men. Yeah, (laughs) I've got a whole team of gals that are writing, typing away. <laughs> so Haig was initially offered a viscountcy. So he was to be made a viscount, viscount Haig. He declined. He said, "No, that will not do. Um I will not accept any sort of um lordship until the disabled officers are taken care of by the British government." Oh, That's a noble thing. Good boy. Saying Dave. I'm not going to accept anything until you've paid for our disabled officers. It also gives Haig a chance to negotiate a higher order um, of the lordship. Right. Is he going to pull a, I am also disabled halfway through? <laughs> no, I he's already. I, I am only dyslexic after the war. <laughs> no, remember, he's, uh, or he, he, I fell off my horse and twisted my ankle during the war. Yeah. Uh, he had the golfing injury, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. A strained oblique. Yeah. Um, Eventually, he is made an earl, which is one order higher than a viscount, and this is after securing a small bonus for um, disabled officers. So again, kind of the theme so far is Haig would say one thing and is kind of doing the opposite, but in weird ways. It's perfect. Yeah. That's exactly how you politish. Yeah, there's a T style called Earl Grey. What is Earl Haig? Is that just like, um, I don't know, pieces of skin? Uh, Maybe a whiskey. Some mud he is in a, a, a satchel. It's a family whiskey distillery, so an Earl Haig might be like a whiskey cocktail, is yeah. my guess. Yeah, like one of those um, cocktails with tea flavors. Yeah. Like oh, one okay. of those sideshow green tea kind of things All right. going on. Yeah. I, I mean, he's definitely a tea drinker, but... Well... <laughs> He's, he is Scottish, but he always talks about being English. I'm yeah, a, he, I'm going. We know he drinks too. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> with uh, skin flakes and mustard seed. Good. There we go. That yeah. must be delicious. Yeah. <laughs> so this, uh, bef- that's kind of skipping ahead a little. At the immediate moment of the surrender, um, there was a lot of discussions of which army commanders are going to be involved in the p- treaty process. Haig had no desire. He was like, I fucking hate politicians. No thanks. I fought the war. My job is done. Um, He is happy to continue in his role as army commander because the British government has the massive task in front of them of demobilizing the over one million men that were in the British Expeditionary Force and doing so in a way that wouldn't either, one, tank the British economy or two, lead to a revolution as had happened in Russia. So that's the tightrope act the British have to walk. Okay. Uh, Now, they've been kind of planning for this, you know, 
1917, obviously they weren't saying like next year when the war ends, but they're saying like, you know, when the war ends, we're gonna have to figure this out because they'd already, so many men were out of work. Um, so many of the people who were back working in the factories were, had taken jobs from soldiers who are on the front lines now. So it's like, what do you do with them? Right. All of this going on. It's a work of fiction, but like Peaky Blinders, you can imagine Peaky Blinders, yeah. they all come back from World War One, and they're like, well, where do I get, I'm all like, uh, I got, I have shell shock and I'm all, uh, where do I work? You know, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. no one's taking care of me. I wanted to work at the rope factory, but every time the thing turns, I get scared of war. <laughs> yeah. Might as well wear this flat cap and look really cool and walk around in the muddy streets with sparks flying around me. <laughs> while listening to anachronistic music. Yeah, while listening to the music cool. that came in in uh, t- 2010. Came out in 2010. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the government had uh, initially created a plan in classic government fashion, it's overly complex and extremely bureaucratic and caused a huge amount of resentment among the rank and file when it became known. The gist of it was that those who had proven jobs to go back to, basically like a note from their boss that like, yes, I am going to hire Joe, um, they would be discharged first. Then it would be like, there were also ranks within these ranks, like the next big rank was married men just in general. But if you were a married man who had a job to go back to, you're in the first group. Nice. But then if you're a single guy who had a job to go back to, you're in the first group. Um, depending on the job, you're like higher up the order than other people. So it's all really confusing. Haig predicted this exact situation in 1917 when he first heard of it saying, you know, this is dumb. We can't do this. We have to figure out a better way. I don't know. It seems to make sense to me. It... I'm not explaining it great because also the book I read didn't explain it perfectly, but it was like they were just really worried about just sending all these men back to England with no clear direction. Right. Because it's like we can't really keep paying them their war, like soldier salaries without like a wartime economy. Mm-hmm. We're transitioning to a peacetime economy. Half of them don't ha- have never had jobs to begin with. And right. it's like useless. They also are watching Russia devolve into a brutal civil war at this point like it's 1918 yeah. the russian civil war the their british are sending some army units to go fight in the russian civil why war. why don't they just go to like a place in africa and start a war <sighs> see probably some of them did that yeah uh, but you yeah. know you don't need many guys to do that that's you, know? that's, you just that's need one american guy thing. with a maxim gun yeah that's an american <laughs> thing we're done we're done fighting uh nazis and japs let's go fight the koreans and chinese <laughs> We got it from somewhere, though, Travis. That's true. We learned from somewhere. Very true. Very true. Uh, Churchill, in the histories that he would write, predicted... That didn't predict it. He um, defended Haig in this moment, saying, quote, It is surprising that the commander-in-chief's prescient warnings were utterly ignored and the army left to be irritated and almost convulsed by a complicated artificial system open at every point to suspicion of jobbery and humbug. (laughs) I honestly had a hard time following that. <laughs> Dude, job. He basically said, why'd we ignore Haig? This is all humbug. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just love that he used that word in official history of World War One. That is good. Yeah. yeah. It's a humbug. Dickens. Classic. <laughs> I don't know if you guys heard of Dickens, but he was uh, on that. That was, that was actually a very vulgar term at the time, a humbug. <laughs> <laughs> what, yeah. did, what do you think it meant then? <laughs> Um. Well, it's when you put on your World War One gas mask, and then mm. you 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 hum it in there. 
<laughs> God. And you're talking about a man's ass. Yes. Right? Yeah. Well, okay. that's on the trenches. Yeah, I mean, they're, yeah, they're yeah. in the trenches. Yeah. <laughs> Who else is in these trenches? I mean, the word before it is jobbery, so it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Haig uh, helps with the transition. They come up with a slightly better plan. It works. They avoid all the revolution. Haig is getting honors heaped upon him. Um, all the rank-and-file soldiers love him. He is made head of the home forces. So now that he's finally left France by the, like, the end of 1919. Um, and the army is back in England and is demobilizing. Everything's going well. But in February of 2020, Haig is rather abruptly stripped of his position as commander of the home forces because demobilizing is going so well. And now he's just a retired field marshal in the British Army with no command. He has no job. He is basically, like, semi-retired that quickly. Well, is he still getting paid a little bit? He's getting paid, like, a small amount, but it's not... He also just has a shit ton of money because he's an earl now. So right. he's just like earning a hundred thousand pounds a year. And he's got that liquor money too. And he's got the liquor money rolling in. But he's just he's reti- he's done. That's Hague. That quickly. Yeah. Wow. So now we've got retired Hague. Yeah, he's like, I feel like the boys returning with no job, but heaps and <laughs> heaps of money and in the state. <laughs> and these boys have it so rough. Yeah. <laughs> I also will go unemployed, just like my men. <laughs> yes, except I'm going to take Saturdays to spend time in my wave pool. <laughs> and golf on Sundays. Yeah. And, well, Mondays I stay in, but... <laughs> I, I usually start late. Often it's a holiday of sort. Yeah, unfortunately, that's uh, a little far... Well, I guess fortunately, that's far from the truth, because he would still be active for the next uh, few years. Um. He would spend most of his time just traveling all around Britain, going to small little village halls, universities, clubhouses, army barracks, hundreds of different little engagements where people wanted to hear him speak. He's going on a speaking tour, but he's rich enough that he doesn't need speaking fees, except I, I bet the pubs are buying him drinks. Yeah, I'm sure they put him up room and board and he yeah. just travel a little bit. Right. That's probably right, yeah. So, so Everything's we, comped. <laughs> yeah, we obviously started this whole series by calling him the Butcher of the Somme. So at this point, he's a butcher as I look as a butcher. Like, oh, yeah, the butcher's here. Yeah, he's going to slice salami for me. <laughs> he brought his lamb. This is great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're going to feast tonight. He's going to talk about times he cut meat. <laughs> here. <laughs> so Haig is kind of just drifting around, giving, uh, talking to old soldiers, seeing what they need. Um, kind of without a purpose, you know, just going through it. He's older. He's an older man at this point as well. It's, this would all change, though, in 1921, so not too long. So he has like a year of this weird retirement thing because the British Legion is established that year. Now, there are all sorts of organizations that had sprung up right after the war in all of the European countries of like ex-soldiers because there's not really like a unified um, veterans there's no VA in Britain. I don't know about the other countries, but I think the U.S. is pretty novel in, like, creating a VA after the Civil War. Well, so there's no real, like, organization dedicated to, like, helping take care of ex-soldiers. Yeah, every vet needs... That's, like, the American dream. They need dollar beers at a place where that yeah. also does weddings when they're not drinking beer. Yeah, and a bingo hall. Yeah, This is why you legalize 
uh, the other drugs, not weed. <laughs> Just so you can like let them burn themselves out. You know, yeah. let them come home. You're get, freaking everyone out with get your shell to the shock. club scene. <laughs> yeah, two dollar ecstasies. Yeah, they're there every night until their brain is fried. Now yep. we need a little something to slow down. Get them hooked on heroin. There you go. Uh, send them all to Portland. Teach them the ways. <laughs> uh, is that a quote from Henry Kissinger? Or? <laughs> it sounds like. Yeah. It. Yeah. But yeah, why not? Why not give vets a real option? You know, just like we destroyed your life. You can't close your eyes Have without seeing uh, an endless waterfall of gore. <laughs> Um, you can't do drugs though. Yeah. Yeah. It's not <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. I, I think that like you, you should be, if, if you go see actual battle, you should be exempt from drug laws. Mm-hmm. Just do it. Yeah. Just do drugs. Do whatever you want. Yeah. yeah. Of course. Fun. And you get a house that's all padded and it's like a bouncy <laughs> castle. No, you get a storage unit with an air conditioner. That's a good deal. Yeah. That's, a, you, you that's bring, a good square deal. <laughs> you bring your own bed, windows you'll have to pay for. Yeah. yeah. So, Connor, that's you said upgrade. it's 1921. Haig is going to become a flapper, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. He's He's got, like, the weird little hat with the beads that goes over his face. Oh, he's got the crazy skirt. That he's tight, flapping tight skirt. Oh, baby, yeah. Haig. <laughs> uh, those girls look retarded. <laughs> Yeah, so all, there are all these different veterans organizations, and most of them are organized around, like, you know, when we talked about the Liverpool Pals and the, the Grimsby Chums and all of them. Yeah. Like, it's kind of organized around those same things. So it's like, oh, you know, this factory ha- that sent a thousand men to the war and only 200 are coming back. Well, those 200 create a club of veterans from that factory, that type of thing. Did they just change it from the not to the non-plural, like the Grimsby chum, <laughs> because there's only one that's back that came back? Or, or maybe it's not so friendly anymore. Like, maybe they're not the pals. Maybe they're like, I don't know. They're not enemies, but... the per- Just persons. Sad yeah. ones. Yeah. <laughs> there he comes. Let's have that parade we promised him. Yeah. He's got half a face. <laughs> now, the big thing that was happening in Britain which probably was not happening in the other European countries, is that all of these organizations are, of course, segregated between officers and enlisted men. Oh. Yeah. I mean, the U.S. segregated by race, Britain segregated by class. It's not good anywhere, is what you're telling me. We just got to mix it up in capitalism now that it's just still class, but we we pretend like it's not. Yeah. Well, I think now it's just like... um... Class and race are one. Uh, <laughs> no, it's all work. It like, that's all poor black people, and then look what we put on television. White <laughs> white people who hate, hate owning things. Mm, right. Mm. Look how easy my life is. I'm in a small home. <laughs> <laughs> so all of these organizations, you know, very split. Haig um, lends his weight and image to the British Legion specifically because they are one of the first that uh, will allow both to join. So they allow both officers and enlisted men to join. So Haig is uh, champions for that one, and that kind of becomes the de facto, like all of these organizations eventually kind of get swallowed up by the British Legion. Yes, we will allow the ruffians and the gentlemen to have a pint together. Yeah. <laughs> And then they can part, but that's it. They yeah. can have a pint. <laughs> but that's how you make secret societies. Yeah. You, like, force people to be together, and then, like, all right, the poors aren't looking. Let's go play pool. <laughs> They're going to play football. Yeah. We'll play polo. Because yeah. we have horses still. Also, these, uh, these I'm sure the, the actual legions were male-only for vets. 
but the bars at the time uh if there was if there were meeting in regular bars they had a specific section just for women that was closed off <laughs> so women <laughs> like no i'm serious section. women could go in have a pint behind this curtain and then I, like leave <laughs> i thought that was uh, an irish thing it's english too oh really i thought yeah. oh i think hmm. the irish did it longer because they're catholic but yeah, yeah. <laughs> well who honestly wants to look at a woman while you're drinking yeah especially if her tits are out that's gross no, it's nasty. I have to concentrate. I'm figuring out I have a beer the in world's front of me. woes yeah. with my <laughs> drunk friend. I don't want to think about the Mormons. <laughs> so Haig has finally found his post-war calling. He's found something he's passionate about. So he begins to really um, campaign heavily for the British Legion. His main priorities are better pensions and support for ex-officers, unsurprisingly. But he still also is hoping to fight... Um, fight the unemployment among the enlisted men. And ironically, actually, in Britain, because they believed that the officers were already super rich guys, because obviously, yeah. because of that, they received a smaller pension than enlisted men did. That yeah, makes sense. It makes sense. And But um, f one thing they ignored or didn't really acknowledge until Haig kind of brought it up was that by m the end of the war, most of the officers were battlefield commissions. Oh. So they weren't rich guys. <laughs> it was oh. like a guy who was a private in the beginning of the war and watched a hundred men die in front of him. And it's like, well, now you're the lieutenant. Get up there. So that guy was getting less money than like Someone a rich boy who got drafted in 1918. Oh. Yeah. So he was still going off the old conception of the British Army where yeah, you know, paid a commission to get become an officer. Yeah, so he's like, how can they become officers again if they don't have any money? Yeah. We got to give them some money. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I could see where... See, good intentions. Yeah. That's the road to hell. It's paved with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Haig also... You know, he, again, this... He's constantly just loved by his ex-servicemen. Um, they all, all... All of them are writing letters to him constantly. Not all of them, but a lot of them are writing letters to him constantly. <laughs> and Haig, to his credit is always responding with his own handwritten responses sent off to... And he, like, you know, forges relationships with a few of these soldiers just through letter writing. Hmm. So, like, sexting. He felt, uh, what? Sexting. Yeah, he's sexting with oh, them. Okay. They're, get, they're getting humbug and jobberies. You know there was, like, a couple of those guys who were a little loose in the skull yeah. after some trench warfare who were just signing off, like, I love you. And, like... <laughs> he's a... <laughs> he did it back. <laughs> Begrudgingly. He's just like, I love you too, Henry. Yeah. <laughs> he felt it was his duty to speak directly to his soldiers. Um, so he would not, you know, have anyone do the dictation he wanted to handwrite them. He also began setting up a few additional charities outside of the British Legion. He set up the Hague Fund and the Hague Housing Charity, both of which are still in operation in Britain today and still find homes and, uh, you know, jobs and provide support to ex-British soldiers today. That's a good boy. Yeah, a good boy. Now, we got to re return to our old friend, Lloyd George, who Hague hated and was hated by because he had a wonderful moment of revelry when in 1922, Lloyd George's government comes crashing down in a really embarrassing fashion for Lloyd George. So Haig is reveling in his wartime rival's downfall. They did not mend fences when the war was won, clearly. This would come back to bite Haig 
real badly and is one of the main reasons why he, when we started this, was called the Butcher of the Psalm. Because now, one of the reasons that Lloyd George had lost so badly was it had come to light while he was prime minister still that he had signed a publishing deal worth 90,000 pounds at a time at the time. And this is when most British people are still struggling to even get like food because of all the wartime rationing still going on. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, for the generals who like when the war ends, some of them sign publishing deals, but it's like, well, yeah, the war's over. They, they're done. Yeah. They're out of jail. He's still his, prime minister. <laughs> he signed his before the war was over. You said, right? Uh, no, it's like, I think he did it in like 1920 and it came to light in 1921, but mm -hmm. he's still prime minister. Right. Yeah. So he's still doing all this and is like making deals on the side, um, you know, selling his publishing rights early, basically. Mm -hmm. Didn't People didn't like it. It's there are other reasons why, but that was one of the reasons cited. It's kind of crazy that that is an issue a hundred years ago and it's still an issue today when people, yeah. you know, like that. Yeah. that Just sell existed. it, waiting to sell their book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think people do th the things they do to sell the books? Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, you know, like this, like you know, the night Barack Obama found out that he was going to be the president, he was on he the phone was with like, Simon and Schuster. Yeah, yeah. He, he was on the phone with everyone. <laughs> is this Simon or is this Schuster? <laughs> hey, did I call a uh, random house or is this the publisher? <laughs> yes, uh, Penguin. I think I'll have to pass on that deal. I uh, don't want to write a book called First Black Preds." <laughs> <laughs> would it be racist if i signed with penguin <laughs> what do you think michelle you you know some really weird sh i mean every publishing house had to have given him a deal oh absolutely so uh that, well, I mean, that happens all the time there's also only like three publishing houses left it's like the a horrible monopoly but yeah yeah <laughs> Dude, I was, I'm so glad that hasn't happened to, like, our small businesses. And, like, you know, we still have local businesses like Walmart and local businesses like Walmart and other mm. local businesses <laughs> like Walmart. Well, there, and then there's the Walmarts in Long Island, too. Yeah. There's all so, so, so nice. So all nice. business. Yeah. Mm. Free market capitalism. Woo! <laughs> Lloyd George's defeat was, you know, wonderful news for Haig. But here is the big problem. Now that he's unemployed politician who has just sold his publishing deal for 90,000 pounds, now he gets to write those memoirs. And he's going to spend many, many pages going over just how bad Haig had bungled the whole war effort. But those are still to come. He's got to write down these. It's like 10 volumes that he ends up writing. Haig is um, now just mostly spending his energy working for the veterans. He'd settled into a nice country home in Scotland and just kind of bounced around the country, still doing his speeches. Um, there's one event to pick out that kind of echoes a lot of what Haig is as a person again, because he'd finally seemed to relax and open up. He was hanging out with his kids. They always referred to him as like being a very affectionate father and was always like very nice to them and, you know, just good dad stuff. Um, and he's, you know, finally unwinding, but he's still a very, very conservative Victorian gentleman because his longtime valet, uh, this guy, Sergeant Thomas Secret, had spent two and a half decades with Haig, um, all through like the Boer War, World War One. He is Haig's right hand man, his personal secretary. After the war, Secret is earning 65 pounds a year in salary. Oh, <laughs> oh. 65 pounds a year. Now. What? That's not a bad amount of money at the time. I know I just said that Lloyd George sold his 
publishing for 90,000 pounds and this guy's living off 65 a year. But 65 a year then is probably like 40 now. Like it, for 40K? That, yeah. But he's been with him for 25 years. Yeah. Yeah. And he's also got, but he's got room and board. I mean, room and board on the front lines of France, but still, he's in the army, so like, it's not like a complete nothing job. Still, pretty sounds cheap. pretty nothing to me <laughs> because it is, it is half as much as he Haig is paying his gardener. Whoa, uh, on his Scottish estate. Why? Did was that just a clerical error? Who knows? Maybe it was because he was an army man and he's a sergeant, and a sergeant salary is sixty-five pounds a year. I think he just got a really good gardener. He's like, when I was in Africa, I saw an elephant. Can you please make the bushes look like an elephant? And I want the water coming out of its long nose. Uh, I, I don't know. This garden must have been fantastic. Oh, it must have been beautiful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's making a buck seventy a year. <laughs> No, wait, wait, I did that math. A buck 30. Pardon me, I did that math wrong. 65 pounds? Yeah, I think the okay. gardener was making like 110 pounds or, or something a year. And so, yeah. Well, so he, was probably, he was probably hired by his estranged wife. Doris? Oh, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Doris soon. We, awesome. We've ignored her because Haig ignored her, but yeah. the moment he's gone, it's going to be a Doris He keeps show. doing these talks in pubs. Yeah. <laughs> no women. Um... So, uh, secret, it's secret, his secretary, uh, he announced to Haig that he had plans to marry. He had been courting a woman. Um, he would like to marry her and, you know, befitting a married man, he would like a raise. Haig refused. He said, nope, pack your bags. What a dick. <laughs> 25 years. 25 years. See you later. <laughs> Not giving you a raise. Go make it somewhere else. <laughs> what a dickhead. He's probably yeah. like, ew, gross, a woman. Didn't you learn anything You're on the an front lines, boy? <laughs> Men have the pussy in the back. That's extremely Mr. Burns. Yes, yeah. and it will come back to bite him. He and Doris are now traveling together. Um, they're going to Europe. They're going all, like, they go to Paris for, he gets honored by the French government. Um, he goes, I think, to Italy and Spain. He goes to the Americas and gets honored by the Americans um, for being the man that won the war, you know? Everyone, everyone loves him wherever he goes. Clapping with their fat hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we like Haig. <laughs> and um, in 1927, Haig writes an army pamphlet about his one true love. Obviously, we know where it's going to be. It's about the cavalry. Oh, of course. Horse boys. Horse he'd been love. going around. He'd been do- giving all these speeches. And at most of his speeches, all he would say, he actually wouldn't talk about the cavalry he, at this, during these speeches. He would say, like, you know, we won the war because of British determination. You know, it was a uniquely English victory. He would always, he'd like always put down the French whenever he gave his little speech. Uniquely English. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Like only the English Victorian spirit could have beaten the the Germany the German enemy and yeah. you know hurrah for us boys. And well, at but, the end of all these speeches, he just said asterisk, and then somebody's yeah. like, "Oi, what's an asterisk?" And then he's like, "Pipe down, don't worry about it, don't worry about it." <laughs> but in 1927, he's finally can wax poetic about his one true love. This is an extended quote, but I think it's uh, a good one. Sure. I judge the large reduction in our cavalry cadre since the war to have been unwise and ill-timed. Unwise because, given thoughtful reorganization and methodical training, the role of the cavalry in modern war is as important now as ever. 
and ill-timed because it is well known that cavalry cannot be improvised and that once that splendid cavalry spirit, the result of years of tradition and loyal service to the country, is lost, it cannot be reproduced the moment war breaks out and the country's safety again depends on the immediate mobilization of trained cavalry regiments. So he's doubling down. He's doubling down. In 1927... <laughs> not even 1919 it's like no there are already planes like crossing the atlantic ocean yeah we need horses we, yeah we need them we horses. Need horses trust me guys in about 10 or so years you're gonna be saying wow i wish we bred more horses maybe yeah. we'll make a robotic horse one day <laughs> dude i think right now we need to start investing in horse ai because that's a real industry that hasn't been that's the future. Yeah. What would you do with horse AI? I don't know. You train the computer r- horse to eat hay and shit. <laughs> and just have it whinny yeah. and stuff. <laughs> Good boy. All right. Now, unfortunately, we don't get to know um, if Haig would have defended the cavalry, you know, during the London Blitz, because on January 29th, 1928, Haig suffers a massive heart attack and passes away overnight. He was 66 years old. And now the true battle for Haig's legacy begins. Because how did this guy, who was like highly, highly praised by every soldier up until the moment of his death, how did he become the Butcher of the Psalm? I'm going to have to guess it has something to do with that George Floyd fellow you've been talking about. We'll get to George Lloyd later. <laughs> so, heart attack. Was that deep fried Twinkies, Snickers bars, Mackie D's? Urn brews, yeah. yeah okay. all, the, all the above. Deep fried whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> like a true so news- Scott. <laughs> news of his death spread rather quickly. Um, there were massive, massive outpourings of public grief and sentiment. You know, we talked about this a lot with the Queen. Um, where the public is, the British public kind of comes out and cries together. This is one of those moments. In the days that following, the Daily Mirror wrote about this morning, quote, these men had served in the army and had never actually seen Lord Haig, yet they seemed to feel his death as a personal loss. For a moment, it seemed as if the war had come back again and presented us with a stunning casualty. Even Lloyd George would go out of his way in the immediate aftermath to praise Haig and mourn his passing, saying, you know, he was a brilliant general, had done so much for us, all these things, yada, yada, yada. Um, And Churchill, writing in the Times, said that Haig was, quote, incomparably the finest British soldier of this fateful age. So everyone's loving him. He's a hero. That's cool. It's good to know. It's yeah. kind of how I want to be thought of when I go. I know, right? That or just not at all. <laughs> or not. No, no real middle ground. <laughs> yeah, right. There are these. Uh, there's a huge funeral um, procession. They go past the tomb of the unknown soldier. Um, if you've ever been in London, it's one of the definitely a monument you should check out. Um, they build a monument to Haig. Um, a lot of the British sentiment at the time felt that his passing kind of allowed for everyone who had lost people in the war to kind of publicly grieve now that the war was over and, you know, nine years in the past. So it's like this big <laughs> moment of the nation coming together to, like, remember um, Haig, but also the whole war effort itself. Was there, Connor, in your research, was there any, like, Scottish pride for him or was he too upper crust at this point where, like, the Scots are like, he's a poofda? Uh... 
I'm not sure. I mean, it might have been there, but like the biography I read didn't really mention it. Mm. Um, but it did mention a lot how he kind of just like he didn't refer to it as Great Britain or the United Kingdom. It was England, right? I I don't so even I think that kind of yeah. I don't even think he probably didn't even have a Scottish accent, right? He probably spoke in like no, he did. He like, did? Everyone referred to him as a Scotsman. Oh, okay, um, when they met him, um, which maybe he didn't like. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, don't say it to his face. Yeah, and like we're gonna, so we're gonna talk a little bit about his whole legacy, and I wonder if the way his legacy went, maybe that has caused Scotland to like pull back from claiming him as, as like a a Scottish guy. Like they're like, no, he is English. Yeah. Fuck that guy. <laughs> Never seen him in a kilt ever. Yeah. <laughs> He's got one made of lace. Yeah. Um, I can see his balls and pistols <laughs> flying around in the wind. Even if it's down past his knees. Uh, an estimated one million people line the streets of London for, for this funeral procession. The pallbearers included uh, Marshal Ferdinand Foch and uh, Marshal Philip Pétain. So, you know, the French allies coming back to carry his casket, even though Haig didn't particularly get along with Foch. But he got along well with Pétain, I think. Um, however, now we have to come to the question of his legacy. So the first and staunchest of his defenders is the enigmatic Doris, who we have not spent much time talking about. Because we didn't really know anything about her, I don't think Haig knew much about her. Again, he proposed to her after meeting her 36 hours before. Um, and then the war broke out, so he just like would see her for three days every eight months. And if those three days, they'd have a kid. He had four kids, one for each year of the war. Wow. Yeah, I don't know if they're exactly born, that, but he had, yeah, I mean, it he was, he was probably like, I haven't seen you in more than nine months. Where's this new kid coming from? I don't even really <laughs> understand how that works, but. <laughs> I don't concern myself with women's business. I don't read books about ladies. <laughs> Only cavalry horses. Yeah. <laughs> I know how long it takes to gestate a horse. Humans, who cares? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Drop them as they come. Horse, now that is something to lay out the red carpet for. There, <laughs> gallop out of the womb. I should have done that in a Scottish accent. It would have hit a little harder. Ah, uh, he's not super Scottish. All right, let's, let's bounce him back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> he's part Shrek. Part Shrek, part um, Toy Story. I thought it was a beautiful horse. Turns out it was a donkey. <laughs> a donkey. <laughs> Retard horse. They uh, they exchanged letters a lot, Doris and Douglas. I also just read it's Doris and Douglas because I've just always called me. <laughs> so Doris yeah. and Douglas, they'd exchanged letters a lot. Um, and she had just been, you know, this quiet con officer's wife. Just, I don't know, it's like the British empire stereotype where it's like the man's out doing stuff and the woman's in her room right like, yeah. in her drawing room well, well uh, you have to imagine every officer is like that yeah you know like if you're not, if, if you're a poor person the woman has to do stuff they yeah have family to take care of they gotta mm -hmm. soak the beans or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah uh, this woman she's getting her beans soaked for her yeah by, <laughs> exactly. a, by a gardener who gets paid more than the right hand man <laughs> um after douglas's death though Doris finally had a purpose in life, and it was going to be defend Douglas's honor um, like it was like she was proselytizing religion, that like no one could say anything bad about Douglas because he was the perfect boy, and how dare you speak ill of him? And this would be her life's calling, her crusade against well, she, people who spoke out against she spent him. spent her whole life with this weirdo. 
She wants everyone she, to know why, I guess. Once again, doubling down. Like, yeah. It, going, oh, it was great. It, it was the best thing I could have done with my life. Yeah. It spent 50 years with a man who kind of forgot my name often. It seems like she took a, took a page out of Richard Burton's wife, who did the same thing. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's very similar to, to what was her name? Is, again? Isabel, I think. Yeah. Doris and Isabel either would have hated each other because their husbands wouldn't have gotten along, or they would have like had recognized a kindred spirit. Or they could have hated each other because they were exactly the same. Right. You know when people right, are right. just yeah too similar. I mean, yeah. they could have met. I mean, there was an overlap. He she died in the eighteen uh, nineties, so Doris would have been like like an eight year old. Oh, okay. Yeah, because she was like 26 when her and Hay got married. Oh, so she okay. was, yeah, she was a lot younger than. Well, Hay could have met her. But like, I like the Hague way that this. Whoop, I need to find one like this. <laughs> I need to find. <laughs> do you have any nieces or nephews? <laughs> do you have any nieces? Look at that cousins? dead stare. Perfect, <laughs> beautiful dead stare. Yeah. So how did we get from um, all of this public outpouring to one? This is a quote from a historian and a World War I veteran. So all these veterans who loved Haig, B.H. Liddell Hart would write this about Haig uh, in his histories of World War I that came out after Haig's death. He was a man of supreme egoism and utter lack of scruple, who to his overweening ambition sacrificed hundreds of thousands of men. A man who betrayed even the most devoted assistance as well as the government which he served. A man who gained his ends by trickery of a kind that was not merely immoral, but criminal. It's pretty harsh words coming from one of Haig's beloved ex-soldiers, apparently. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean? You don't write the glass door review while you know, your boss is, you're still working for that guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> you wait till you're, you're out. Waiting, yeah. Wait until he's exited, and then you write your <laughs> glass door review. <laughs> yeah. It's a guy who wrote Love Henry every time. <laughs> One of those letters. I thought he liked me. Yeah. <laughs> At least he seemed bit. a fine chap. It was all sarcasm. <laughs> Love Henry. <laughs> I think you're such a good leader. You're an amazing officer. Doris, do you see how much he emphasized amazing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's underlined four times. Your cavalry operations were phenomenal. <laughs> I can't believe we went without them for even a day. <laughs> maybe Love that, Henry. Maybe that was maybe that was Henry. Maybe that was what he was doing. Just didn't get sarcasm. <laughs> He didn't put the slash S at the end. That's yeah. That was a problem. Um, so Doris's first job uh, to pick up the pieces now that Haig had died was what to do with all of his diaries and letters from the war. Remember, he was keeping daily diaries where he would write it out by hand and then type it, often changing it in between. That's how he kind of like defended some of his actions in the moment. Um, so she initially wanted to use these letters to publish a memoir of Haig. Basically, that would... Ex he. There was no need for an exoneration, but it would, you know, keep him as a praised figure of good during the war. Right. King doesn't want this, though. King steps in, hears about it, says, nope, can't have this. Uh, I don't want, because, again, the king had been writing letters to Haig all throughout the war. So he, uh, he doesn't want his letters getting out, so he kind of just blocks all of this from happening. Basically says, no, um, we're going to wait. 
And we don't want to reveal the inner workings of the general headquarters or the war council. So, no, we're not publishing this. He's just thinking of this one time he wrote a letter to Haig about how he, like, pooped his pants a little bit. <laughs> he was like, he was oh, like have you ever pooped? Fuck your... if they hear about that. There's like three or four correspondence back and forth. Like, uh, Haig, I, I must admit something. I pooped my pants last night. I'm just, uh, you know, I want to get it off my chest. And Haig writes back something like, I poop my pants all the time. We're supposed to poop your pants on the battlefield. Yeah. The... We're covered in mud. It's the same thing. The, the boys <laughs> in the line call it following through. <laughs> yeah, so if they hadn't had that one correspondence, the king would have been like, yeah, fine. Yeah, no, no worries. Write whatever you want. <laughs> what this allowed, now that um, Doris couldn't write a official biography using this material, it basically cleared the field for Haig's critics to go unchallenged as they began to publish their misgivings about the late field marshal. First up would be Sergeant Thomas Secret, Haig's oh, secretary. Ah, good. Yeah. He would publish his memoir, 25 Years with Earl Haig, within a year of Haig's death. Um, part of the reason that they had like a big falling out after Haig had let him go was Haig found out that he was writing a memoir and Haig didn't like that. Um, one less than a year after he's dead, memoir's coming out. Give me three pounds more a year. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> let me marry my wife. Yeah. <laughs> also, like, not a good move from Haig while he was alive. That guy's been around you for 25 years. <laughs> he knows where all the bodies are buried. Yeah. Yep. Now, it was mostly positive of Haig. Um, Secret had, you know, he looked up to him. Um, he had given him this kind of cr great career where he was in the inner workings of the British Army only as a sergeant. But it still revealed a lot of the flaws that Haig had that had been hidden from the public. This is where we kind of get the idea of the yes-men um, first springing up that are surrounding Haig. Um, we just kind of learned that he's just kind of like a curmudgeonly old guy. And, you know, before this, he was just, you know, like an uncle. He was like, oh, our, our good pal Haig, who's leading the boys from the front. And it kind of revealed that he's, no, he's a prickly guy, not easy to get along with, but still a capable commander. Did he have weird eating habits? Probably. I can imagine him being the first guy to be like, I'm just going to eat the white part of the egg. <laughs> I don't like yellow. Yeah. It's the cowardly. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of strange looking. It's not very English either. <laughs> he asked him to like cut the crusts off his toast. Yeah, like dumb shit like that. Like, just didn't, didn't really like crust. <laughs> if you don't put the ketchup in a smiley face, strange. I'm not going to eat it. And he won't let anyone eat it. He'll be out in the battlefield and he's cutting crust off of 34 cucumber sandwiches. Giving it to his horse. He's giving it to the horse, yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't give it to the hungry man out there. Yeah, so Secret's, um, his memoir is, you know, it's forthcoming. It's not super critical of Haig, but it's honest, you know. It's the type of biography that should be written about Haig, maybe. And again, it's not a biography of Haig, it's about Secret's experience with him. The worst was still to come. That's Lloyd George. In April of 1933, so this is five years after Haig had died, that's when Lloyd George is finally starting to publish his memoirs. So this also has the effect of like, oh, that the warm glow of his death, like, like of everyone celebrating, that's kind of dimmed. It's 1933, so the British have other things to worry about. You know, Haig died right before the Depression. Yeah. Also, you shouldn't um, do what in. we do and try to get it while they're still warm, you know, and talk shit yeah. about them. Right. <laughs> yeah. So Lloyd George was determined to 
use this opportunity to capture the British public's um, attention and shape their memory as a public of the war. So, like, now that everyone will be paying attention to this serial public, um, publication schedule of his memoirs, everyone will be reading it. There's, like, four newspapers in the world. So it's like, you know, all the eyes are on him so he can really shape the public's perception of what happened. That's so funny. Did he get a guy, like, to do caricatures and, like, <laughs> political, like... Haig depicted in a in a, uh, in a feathered bikini. <laughs> we also have a Mad Magazine version going yeah. out for the kids. Yeah. So you're telling me this uh, this memoir is basically like the first season of Survivor, where everyone had to see what happened. Did yeah. they did they vote off Johnny? Did he get immunity? <laughs> <laughs> but it's just talking shit about one guy. Yeah. It's just one <laughs> one guy being kicked off the island a bunch of yeah. times. <laughs> Yeah, so his main thing, and it's gonna it's gonna build up to the war because it's gonna be all of Lloyd George's like political life before it, and then it'll build to this like crescendo, which will be basically pinning all of what happened in Passchendaele on Haig, and that Lloyd George was saved the day from how dastardly Haig was. So we last left Lloyd George, um, where he had fallen in his 1922 government. Um, after his little publishing scandal. So what's he been up to in the 10 years until it took him to publish his memoirs? Well, he was really pro-German. Oh. Consistently for 10 years. He believed the Treaty of Versailles was to be unfair. Uh, yeah, it was he believed the Treaty of Versailles to be unfair, which, good point, true. Yeah, maybe, maybe started a war. Yeah, <laughs> but he one. also would continually support German demands for territory concessions and would continually ignore or downplay French, Belgian, and Polish security concerns when they would say, hey, maybe Germany shouldn't remilitarize the Rhineland. He would say, no, 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 you're worrying too much. (laughs) Whoopsies. By 1933, he is openly giving speeches saying that British public and government must come out and support Hitler or risk Germany going communist like the Soviet Union. I don't think he understood what was happening. I don't think he knew what was going on. Really. Yeah, if he was going to make that statement. Yeah. It's like, we should get down with what's going over in Germany. Why is that? Because they're going to be like Russia. Because <laughs> they might turn communist if we don't. Yeah. So he was probably good friends with uh, King Eddie. Oh, yeah. I wonder if he was. <laughs> um, probably. Probably got along well. In 1934, uh, he would say that Germany posed no risk to Europe and that there would be no war for at least 10 years. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Yeah, totally. Nailed that. Yeah. In 1936, he would go to Berlin and visit Hitler, calling him, quote, the greatest living German, comparing him to George Washington, and would claim, quote, the Germans have definitely made up their minds never to quarrel with us again. I don't know if you could make a further comparison from Hitler to George Washington. They're they're the same. Tiny little man with a little mustache uh, as opposed to, well, I guess Hitler probably would wear slave teeth. I don't like public figures that speak in hyperbole like that. Yeah. The greatest living German. It's like, did you meet the rest of them? <laughs> How many Germans have you met? Yeah, there was probably one or two of them were like, I don't mind the Jews so much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would say that guy might be considerably better than Adolf Hitler, because I don't know if you know what Hitler is about. Was Kinski, alert. was Kinski alive yet? Was Kinski the only other German he'd met? And oh. was like, this guy's a horny maniac. <laughs> Yeah, he stay just, away from him. He just met Klaus Kinski <laughs> and Adolf Hitler. Hitler. He's like, well, this guy tried to fuck me and my wife. And, and he's he, seven. <laughs> he threw a plate at me. 
This has got to be the this, best. Job this is the greatest. And meanwhile, this little Hans. This one, he's an yeah. artist. Meanwhile, Hans in uh, Munich, who is the actual best German that ever lived, just sitting there like, oh, I got in my Wiener schnitzel. <laughs> Why does he not like Papa? me, Papa? <laughs> he missed his train because a child had uh, skid his knee on cobblestone, <laughs> and he wanted to assure the child that he would be okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so he just had this quote where he says that, oh, well, the Germans, they're not going to fight us again. When the Germans are fighting them again during the Battle of Britain as London is being bombed during the Blitz, uh, Louis George comes out and says, we should f negotiate a peace right now with Nazi Germany this minute. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so that's a quick background of what Lloyd George's post-war um, career, how his trajectory on the world stage. So I guess Churchill didn't like him much. Not at, not at that point. No, they uh, they they were close once, drifted apart. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Everyone has those friends that go a little bit too far into the deep end into their yeah. exactly exactly. <laughs> it's like oh man, whoa, easy easy, pump the brakes. Back to 1933, um, when Lloyd George is publishing his memoirs. It's a good timing because it's right when the anti-war sentiment is peaking. Um, this is kind of when everyone's like hoping that they can just avoid the horrors of World War One, you know, any means necessary. So when his books are, you know, their bestsellers and it's helping him stay relevant and he's talking about how, you know, I wanted to lessen the burden of the First World War. It was the generals who caused all the horrific suffering. So this is why it kind of is the perfect moment for him to release it because it there's already a building wave of like critiquing the war, and so he's just kind of capitalizing. Yeah, on he that. was. Uh, did he write in this memoir like, uh, "I wanted to replace Haig with a nice little German officer named Hitler"? <laughs> <laughs> Think of all the suffering we would have avoided if the little Bavarian corporal had been leading the British expeditionary force. This is fun alternative history. <laughs> yeah. I loved his cute little mustache. When he gets to talk about Passchendaele, he basically says that Haig um, was in favor of more attacks like that had happened on the first day of the Somme, that he, that Haig was constantly arguing to send more men over the line. Just all the classic, like, World War I callous general stuff. This is kind of when the trope really takes off, um, is Lloyd George. The books don't explain why, if Lloyd George felt this way, he didn't fire Haig, because he could have throughout the entire war. But he, he just leaves that out of it. Um, or, you know, if he always knew he was the wrong man for the job, why don't you hire the right man for the job? But he never gives who that right man for the job would have been. It's more just, Haig was an idiot. Too much End paperwork. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he sounds I angry. need to write more about my friend Adolf. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to... You, you have to think about the severance that uh, Haig would have got. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, he probably got away with it, too, because... Haig was Scottish. Probably a little bit. So a lot of people reading these memoirs going, yeah, we knew. <laughs> We've <laughs> always thought. Oh, is he making a bad, what, as a Scottish guy making a bad decision? Oh, he's stubborn. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. They, they eat like screwdrivers and things up there. <laughs> Have you heard them talk? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Doris did not take this idly. Um, as Lloyd George begins to publish his memoirs, she finally is able to commission a rival biography of Haig that will paint him in the light that she thinks he deserves. She enlists the help of the, a writer named Duff Cooper. 
Just a real British 1930s name right there. Ah, Duff Cooper. Ah, Duff's here. He's he's ready to write for us. That's the kind of name you hear and you realize that there's probably like a million more names that you've never heard before. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's like, what? Duff Cooper. Duff Homie's Coop- name is Duff Cooper? Yeah. I don't know if his name, if his first name was something else. They, they shortened to Duff, but. Duffington Post Cooper. Yeah. <laughs> no, Duff Cooper's uh, catchphrase was, I'm going to take a nibble out of crime. <laughs> oh man <laughs> just a nibble so, so cooper has access to all of Haig's diaries and letters and he writes just you know a good biography of Haig. um it whitewashes a lot of the shortcomings that um thomas secret had highlighted it really just is a straightforward account of the war using Haig's um, personal writing to like supplement it and just talks about how Haig is the right man for the job and did his duty for his country and led the men, for, you know, all praiseworthy things. Doris fucking hated it. She really, really hated it. She's like, this is not nearly praising of my Dougie enough as it should be. Yeah. Uh, the biography I read said, for Lady Haig, only a secular canonization of her late husband and a simultaneous verbal destruction of Lloyd George would have sufficed. So she wanted the biography to be like, here's why Douglas uh, Haig should be made a saint, and here's why Lloyd George is the devil incarnate. All right. Yeah. So she's getting... Um, increasingly erratic her family members are worried for her her kids who are even like you know in their 20s um or teenagers are also worried for her that like her she you know she's living in her own world she is is super paranoid about everything and she's just obsessed with preserving doug's legacy um which kind of hampered his legacy because it's just like the rantings of a mad woman at this point it's like she's just like can't you can't criticize even tiny little thing about him without her going nuts about it. So everyone's like, oh, you must, he sucked, whatever. Yeah. Um, She's making it worse. He, the right spokesman. Yeah. You yeah. need a good spokesman. You can't have like a crazy woman who keeps shaving her fucking eyebrows or something like that. Right. Goes. <laughs> um, she, she also decides that because um duff cooper's biography wasn't praiseworthy enough she's gonna write her own biography thank god and it'll show just how good dougie is this leads to the hague trust so the hate the trust that hague had set up to like manage his estate suing his wife saying no you can't release a rival biography to the one that we've already commissioned to be released of him you have to like then we'll have competing sales, and we're already competing with Lloyd George. No one's gonna make money, and no one's gonna read these books. Who's buying this shit anyway? I don't know. Some, not many people. I love to read about my officer's life. Yeah. I remember him from when I was a boy. What an officer! Yeah. <laughs> like what? Who cares? Uh, yeah, I also feel like the average World War One vet is probably too like loose-brained to <laughs> read well, it's, anymore. Yeah, it's more capturing like the people who came after the the shell-shocked guys because they're whatever they're right off. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like Let's get everyone else to hate them. They're I get I get people were different. They were different back then because like to me now reading a memoir like that. Yeah, it's like we we do it on the show because we're focused around history. The idea of these books selling in like what's worth printing and making money on that's 
I'm a bit yeah, lost there. Yeah. Some yeah. of the books we read, I'm sure it's just like, yeah, this didn't make any money. No. Well, and also, it's, like it's, you were saying, Lloyd George did it serialized. So everyone's reading the paper, right? And yeah. Be like, so it's like oh. one, volume one comes out this month, and then two months later, volume two is out, and then like another three months, volume three. So it's like, he's, you know, he's a TV man. He's keeping the interest going with the yeah. new episodes. And he's also got to deal with the paper. It's a little different. Right. And right. it's hard to compete with. Yeah. And he's also, by this point, like more relevant than Haig is. Haig was a general, you know, in the biggest war, but he was quickly out of the public eye because he's basically retired within two years. Yeah. And then he dies in 1928. And then they go through the Depression. So um, he's like faded from the spotlight. So the damage is done by this point. Cooper's biography is released. Um, it sells well, but not nearly as well as Lloyd George's. Um, it's receives some praise in the press, but again, Lloyd George is dominating the public perception of the war. Churchill, by this point, is also releasing his own uh, memoirs. Again, Churchill's still alive, like, but also releasing memoirs of his, <laughs> like, his tenth memoir at this point. Yeah. Um, nuts. And he flips his assessment of Haig that he had in the aftermath of the war and in the aftermath of Haig's death. He writes basically that Haig is just an ordinary man, didn't really do much to win the war, it was just kind of there, and said he was rarely capable of rising to great heights. So Churchill doesn't like condemn him, but he's just like, no, he was nothing. But I he, think that th th like that's kind of what we've gathered. That's kind of series. He's what I've also yeah. figured out. It might be the most fitting description of him. Yeah. He's probably, like, Churchill is probably feeling a bit burnt out from the liquor. Yeah. And yeah. he's just <laughs> All like, the brandy. I have, I have no reservations for just being honest right now. Yeah. Well, yeah, and Churchill, I mean, he, he exaggerates and, like, uh, the way, the, from what I've read of Churchill, it's like the way he likes to write things and make them big and bold and... Yeah, Haig everything, is, not is, big everything is like a hyperbole, and Haig is just <laughs> like just no, no adjectives, none. Yeah, no, ever. Nah. You, the only time you you see like a little twirl of his mustache is when he sees a horse. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful <laughs> buxom that. horse. <laughs> he he. He's probably like the Kinski book, but instead of talking about fucking underage women, he talks about riding horses. horses. Yeah. <laughs> and their glutes. Yeah. Oh. Like every page is like, and then there was a big, big old black beauty looking horse <laughs> that I saw coming across the hill. And I said, man, 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 I pay 65 pounds a year. Go get him. If I, if I could bring Haig to the future and was only allowed to show him one like piece of media from at the time after he died, it would just be the Budweiser Clydesdale commercial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing else. You don't need to know about World War II, Dougie. You don't need to know about the British Empire collapsing. Just watch this commercial yeah. for beer. I'd show him some of Top Gear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and just be like, that's what horses look like now. That's, that's <laughs> we killed the rest. You've heard of a Mustang, but have you seen a Mustang? <laughs> So as the decade followed, um, followed by, obviously, the Second World War coming and going, the opinion, basically, that the public in England and most of Europe had of the leaders of the First World War just would steadily decline because, you know, the Second World War casts such a massive shadow of, like, that's what really makes World War I seem pointless. If there's no Second World War, we would look back on the First World War and be like, that was horrific, that was awful, but it didn't need to be fought, maybe not, but who knows? It's just what humans do but the fact that it was followed so quickly by the second world war fought by basically the same side makes everyone kind of look back and go well what the fuck like who yeah. is responsible for all of this 
who caused all this? Yeah, and World War II had better effects. You know, you had bigger Way explosions, b- faster yeah. planes. Clear good guys and bad guys. Yeah. Made it easy. It's like when yeah. Disney took over Star Wars. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. It kind of reminds me of, like, I used to work in a deli when I was younger, and there were these twins. Uh, they were in their 40s, and they had, uh, oh, they had a deli with their parents when they were younger. They'd always tell stories from that deli, and I was like, that's your deli then. Like, I don't care. I'm working in this deli now. Yeah. Like, look at right now. Man. Look, like, look at what's happening here. Yeah. Look at this shit show. Um, this sort of idea and public perception would calcify in the 1960s. That was when um, Alan Clark would publish the book The Donkeys, which was that's what coined the phrase that the British Army were lions led by donkeys. Um, it also made up a lot of stuff. So there's like this common lie that Haig had given a direct order that on the first day of the Psalm, the men were to walk, not run. Not true. They were told to like advance steadily, but like stay together, but not like they were, he wrote in the book that they were told to march in step over the line, like hand in hand, basically. And it's like, that's not true. There are other stuff. It's like small stuff, but it's like, there's already damning stuff that we've gone over. You don't need to just make shit up to like make Haig look bad. What was the worst thing yeah, he wrote? Um, I mean, the, like, the, the walking at the Somme, that really affected a lot of people, because, you know, 20,000 dead on day one, so, like, that kind of was seen as the, he was seen as the cause of it. Um, there was also a rumor that he, um, was arguing for less machine guns when he was actually always arguing for more. Um, the cavalry stuff is all true, like, just talk (laughs) about how stupid that is. Yeah. He wanted more horses. (laughs) Yeah. Talk about the horses. Not that he wanted machine guns. Yeah. Sir, we're all hungry. We could use more food. Yeah. I think I'll go get some horses. Yeah. <laughs> Not for eating. <laughs> no, no, no. This is an Ikea. Uh, <laughs> uh, the true, da- like, most damning thing that came out in the 60s, though, was the British um, musical comedy film, Oh, What a Lovely War, which was released in 1969. Um, it was like a dark comedy about World War I, and Haig is a major character in it, and he's basically portrayed as, like, super gruff, stubborn, all the things that we've talked about, which he is, but basically that he was a mindless lunatic who, if he sent a million soldiers to the front and the Germans sent a million soldiers and all of them died except one British soldier, then good, Britain won. Like, which is not true, but you could still make fun of him without just lying about stuff. Well, I mean, when you put out a... A comedy musical. I don't think people take yeah, it as seriously. Exactly. As like but a, the thing is that, that that becomes the image of Haig, is that he is the butcher. He is completely, you know, callous and basically sociopathic. Wait, gotcha. Tom, you're telling me Life of Brian is not historically accurate? I didn't say that. Uh, okay. Don't put words in my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this would continue, um, basically this becomes the dominant view of what Haig's legacy was, um, in all of Britain and really the Western world. This is further cemented in the 1980s by one of the greatest TV shows of all time, Black Adder Goes Forth, which you should watch. It's amazing. Is that the book one? No, that's Black Books. No, Black Adder is the World War One one, where it's, um... The whole series is is World War One. No, so they it's do like different each time periods, is a different right? English history part. Oh. And this was, I think, Black Adder goes forth is the last one they did. So like it was already a cultural phenomenon, and then they do the Black Adder goes forth 
uh, okay. World War One. Go watch the ending of it if you don't want to watch all of it. It's just really you'll see Hugh Laurie, young Hugh Laurie. Mm. Who I, who's the f- name of the? It's Mr. Bean, Rowan Atkinson. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He is Black um, Adder. Right. Yeah, he's Black Adder. So in it, he's like the major and is working under Haig. And they make a joke that like the big planned offensive they have coming is so that Haig can move his whiskey cabinet one inch closer to Berlin. (laughs) Great joke. Yeah. (laughs) But it just kind of reinforces the idea that Haig is indifferent to British casualties. Um now I just kind of want to say like all of Haig's good and bad qualities are usually like the same side of the coin, which has kind of been like what we started this episode with. Like, um, he was super stubborn. He refused to back down. That leads to more casualties, but at the same time, that's kind of what you need in World War One. There were all these generals on both sides who were like losing their, like literally going insane. And you kind of needed someone who was like, can just see through all the carnage, basically. Yeah, and I think you said at some point during this series, like, would anyone else do anything different? You know, that's the that's really what it kind of comes down to. Yeah, yeah, I would have won quicker. <laughs> <laughs> would have not. Yeah, I had so many horses, probably brought more guns. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The big problem was the two-time world champ came in too late, cause sealed that deal up in 1914. Yep. Uh, yeah. True. <laughs> Thanks, Woodrow. That's what he's never saying. No one's saying it. Yeah. <laughs> and a big reason that Haig becomes like the the poster child for the wasteful British or wasteful World War One general of like all the sides is because Germany goes through World War Two, so they they don't like that world war one casualties pale in comparison to the world war two casualties. Yeah. France has fought many, many wars where like millions or a lot, huge amounts of their population have died. World war one is the only war that the English or British people have ever fought where they are fighting with a massive army against the main enemy army. Even world war two, the British are never engaging the majority of the German army at any point in the war. Even when it's like, oh, Britain stands alone. Yeah, it, it's air force and naval forces. <laughs> it's the Russians who are fighting them. Like, yeah, the Russia yeah. always stands alone. <laughs> Good. Uh, World War II casualty rates um, would actually be basically the same as they were in World War I for British casualty rates, but it would be only, only, quote-unquote, 350,000 casualties. But it's because they're fighting with less men, whereas... In World War One, they're putting two million men in the field. So yeah, you're gonna have a lot of casualties. Yeah, and isn't that what being a general is? Yeah, <laughs> like, I don't know, man. Could have just got could have just taller guys. Could have got taller guys. Could have got taller dudes. I want to yeah. see an episode where Mike Rowe does Douglas Haig. It's a dirty job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, like like I said, like the two sides of the coin thing. Um, like his stiff upper lip attitude is. Just indifference to casualties, um, delegating tasks to capable subordinates is actually just taking credit for those that did the actual work, which these are fair criticisms. Um, and I don't want to praise the guy. I still think he was kind of an idiot, but he was just there. I think that's really what I've come away with this from. I don't think you need to, like, really lay into him like that. That's He's just there. Yeah. Kind of what i've been doing yeah so it's fine <laughs> and and i think he was a guy that was in two different centuries yeah. right he oh, was very yeah. much a 19th century victorian going into a war yeah. that was uh, you know arguably the first 20 20th <laughs> he century might have, war 
he might have been like a brilliant Napoleonic era commander because then cavalry is actually doing something. Yeah. You know, like he just, you know, he was just there for he was a really good bureaucrat. He was a really good administrator. Yeah. But that's really boring. <laughs> like, yeah. And that's not what you want out of a general. No, nah, I want someone who's fucking ripping asses off. I want people. my general, like a true American, to be beating men that have are suffering from PTSD. Yeah. Like Patton. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Or Dougie, uh, Douglas, this, McGar- the other Dougie, Douglas MacArthur, just gassing their own vets. Yeah, uh, nuke the Chinese. Yeah, nuke the Chinese. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the so the biography that I read about Haig ends on this line that I think is really fitting. Would the Allies have won the Great War without Haig? Almost certainly, yes. Does that diminish <laughs> his contribution? Arguably not. <laughs> so not definitely, but maybe. Yeah. Oh, wow. And that's Dougie Haig and all of his legacy. So if you want to call him the Butcher of the Somme, go ahead. He was a rich, you know, imperialist. That's fine. Make fun of him. But make fun of the empire as a whole then. Maybe do that. Uh, I don't know if we should do that. I don't I don't. All right. Well, Travis is an imperialist. Yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a big Britain guy. I don't know if you told me. I don't know if you met me before. Oh, very cool, Travis. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> Tom, are, um, are you calling him a butcher after all this great research? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think so. Because I think a lot of people are just going to get killed anyway. Yeah. Uh, I don't think... It, it doesn't sound like he actually helped. That's the thing. I think he didn't help, but I think just by not losing his cool that was all they really needed okay i'll give him that and in all seriousness and like, so, but other people could have done that that's the thing other people didn't i mean he replaced a guy who couldn't like he replaced john french who was already losing his mind we didn't talk about it. the german general who like l- starts the war before the even like right as the decisive battle finally happens in the first like two months he is insane, like has lost his mind completely and is like immediately transitioned out of the army. They've moved, sent him to Portland. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, as he's quickly replaced by Falkenhayn and then like the French, they get a really stubborn guy and they have all these like terrible losses at the beginning, Jaffre. And people, historians have since said like, part of the reason the French suffered all these casualties is because this guy was just way too calm. But then it came a point where you needed someone who was just calm and wouldn't panic. Yeah. It's there, weird. It's World a, War One. It's just such a weird, fascinating subject. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to Hague specifically, it's like, I don't think, based on what you're telling me, I think if you just took like a very by-the-book kind of officer who was even somehow less fun than Hague, which is probably hard to find because yeah. it doesn't sound yeah, fun. Yeah, no. But it wouldn't have pushed the needle it wouldn't have moved either the needle. way. Yeah, it would have like maybe they wouldn't have been so gung ho about Passchendaele, but maybe it, Passchendaele would have happened at a different town that we don't know about anymore. Yeah, yeah. Like I that's mean, the type of needle pushing. I, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like it's, it's like it's not really the big picture apples. doing anything. Like when you're just put in the job, you know, like back to the deli before it really doesn't matter how like how I cut the ham. Right. Someone's going to be cutting the hand, you know? (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, I kind of mentioned a few things that, like, I thought he was in two different centuries, but I'm going to give Haig a pass, and this is my reason why. I mean, I think he's a moron for many other reasons. (laughs) Boo. No, 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 but hear me out here. 
So I think World War One is probably the stupidest war to ever start. We've talked about, you know, the, all the countries all the coming together, the events it, yep. to come together. And from what you've told me, Connor, I mean, I think they could have found someone le- like less level-headed. Like maybe they put Ringo Starr's dad as <laughs> like the commander, and he's like, I don't know, maybe we should just drum on him. And like, <laughs> and then you get just kinda then you get holding it down, yeah. And then you get even more people dead. So I mean, like I said, I, you know, I think it was a very uh, changing time, right? Like how I can't talk yeah, to. Yeah, well, Travis, you brought up the idea of the good butcher who comes around with all his meats. Yeah. And so that kind of like when you asked Tom, would you call him a butcher? I was thinking, you know, maybe you still call him a butcher because yeah, I'm I'm excited when the butcher presents me with his various salamis and cuts yeah. of pork yeah i don't want to watch the butcher slice the pig's throat open that he can do behind closed doors so maybe haig is a butcher yeah and we kind of focus on the slaughtering and not the nice meats he presented us at the end right what are the nice meats again uh world war ii <laughs> <laughs> okay so i think the moral more, the... more stuff to read about and watch gotcha yeah, yeah. the moral the story the history channel the moral of the story is go to the butchers the local butcher and tip him really nice yeah all right <laughs> um thanks Connor. yeah no this, problem this was a lot of fun and also harrowing yes uh, Thank you again to Cullen for coming in on a uh, quick Passchendaele dip. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Shout out Cullen. Yeah, that was that was fun. This is a good series. Yeah, interesting series. Let's lighten it up. <laughs> yeah, I think we all need it. Yep. Travis, bring in someone who's funny. Bring in the guy who made stockings. <laughs> oh yeah, stocking McStockerson. <laughs> yeah, he was a vegetarian or something. Well, we got a yeah, fun one like, coming oh. up next. We're gonna we're gonna break in a little bit of fun. All right. Cool. Uh, thank you for listening, everyone. If you've made it this far, I don't see why you couldn't go to patreon.com slash roastmortemcast and enter your PayPal information or whatever verified payment they take and give us, I don't know, some of it. Yeah. Whatever you have, give us some of it. Yeah. An amount. Yeah. And if you don't want to do that, Think about that. Um, we'll, maybe we'll set up a P.O. box and you can wire us cash. Actually, if you don't do that, I'm going to send you poison weed for Ooh. you to smoke. Oh. But I won't tell you it's poison. <laughs> so you can see how I see now that I, I close my eyes. <laughs> Between Thomas <laughs> is still high 48 hours later. <laughs> That's what it is. It's fucking Passchendaele. That's what I've been seeing. Yeah, like. yeah. <laughs> the fat in the bottom of the hole. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, go there. Go to... Uh, What's the other one? Roastmortemcast.com. Buy a hat. Yeah. We got hats. We got shirts. I think we even... We don't even make any money on those. We don't make any money on our merch. Yeah. No. It's just for fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it's expensive. So do it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you.